Welcome to the Pop Cultist Podcast, where we rant about video games, movies, TV shows, everything under the sun of pop culture. Today's episode, I guess, I'm going to talk about a particular video game that's so close to my heart and actually was one of the games that left a lasting impression on me. I am a huge fan of RPG games, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people who play video games are as well. But now the definition of what makes a role-playing game a role-playing game is kind of skewed. A lot of people are under the assumption that as long as there's leveling up or a skill tree, then that can, that's what you consider a role-playing game. And uh, the industry has kind of led it to be that, you know, action games can have role-playing elements and still be called an action RPG. The thing is that there are few games that have the purest form of role-playing to it, such as Skyrim or Fallout or Deus Ex, I guess. Deus Ex was a huge pioneer in the role-playing game genre. Now, for me, while those games were very important for, as a gamer and as somebody who starts to appreciate the arts of games, there's one game that kind of stood out even more so than these. I'm pretty sure many of you haven't heard about it, but it's called Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Now, this game came out in 2004, and it was published by this company that doesn't exist anymore. It's been, uh, went bankrupt and dissolved. It was called Troika Games, and they got the publishing license from a tabletop game manufacturer called White Wolf. White Wolf used to make these games, these tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons-esque, and they were based around this universe of their own called the World of Darkness. Now, the World of Darkness is by far one of the best mythos that I've ever come across, and it's so detailed and well-written that I, you know, I never got to play the tabletop version, and I'd love to play that sometime, but... The video game got me cl as close as I could and it sent me down a rabbit hole to learn about the lore more and more and more. For those of you who, that don't know what a tabletop game is, it's basically you're kind of given a character sheet and you fill out these traits based on your classes or something like that. And you have to roll a dice to decide your moves. Uh, that is what the typical tabletop game is and there is usually a dungeon master or somebody who's kind of orchestrating the games and if you're watching the recent uh season of riverdale season three you should be i mean you get a glimpse of a badly made tabletop game there being the central focus of the plot getting back to the game vampire the masquerade bloodlines this game well when it was first released, it was yeah, like rife with bugs and errors and everything like that because they were kind of forced into early release. They had a schedule and they had to push it out as fast as possible. And a lot of games suffer because of that kind of business practice that they need to hurry things out, hurry things out. And most of the prolific games that we know or the games that have that usually have like a wide fanfare and critic reception are games that usually take their time with production 
they can be like five years from announcement date. Though that tends to usually kill the hype from a marketing standpoint, but it's pretty important when you're trying to make the best product you can. I guess procrastination is key there. Vampire the Masquerade had that issue, but the bare bones of it and the soul of that game were so important to the fans. This game was kept alive primarily due to unofficial patches done by fans even past the release date that actually helped build the uh, the parts that the game developers had not finished and actually add things to the game or take things from the code of the game that were not available in the final version developers released. These unofficial patches have been important to keeping the game alive and even so currently there is a uh, or there was a chemistry professor from the University of Munich that was instrumental in patching the game and in one of the one of the interviews it, the developer of of White Wolf I mean a a person who is in charge of White Wolf they actually mentioned that the reason why they're hesitant in making uh, games around the world of darkness is that they won't always have a German chemistry professor who will be there to save their ass when in, in case there's uh, issues with you know uh, game development or bugs. Going back to the topic about the world of darkness itself, it's a world where vampires, werewolves, mummies, mages, even gods exist and sometimes they're interconnected and sometimes they're independent of each other the world of darkness has been segmented into different parts one being the classic world of darkness then an event happens and they kind of change the rules and the setting of the game and created the current one that's going on now the vampire the masquerade bloodlines is based around the classic world of darkness so bloodlines it's kind of considered canon in the lore. I mean, the video game, it's considered canon in the lore and how it progresses. So the game starts with you choosing a clan. And these the interesting part of this is that the clans of vampires all have their own unique uh, backgrounds and skills. And they're, they, they're kind of like a race. So... I'm going to name out the clans. There's the Toreadors, which are basically the twilighty vampires. They kind of love beauty and aesthetically beautiful things. They they tend to be very beautiful and gameplay-wise, they're uh they have better uh skills of persuasion, seduction, and uh, sex appeal and things based on conversations. And there's uh, typically those ugly vampires called the Nosferatu. Now, the Nosferatu have the disadvantage that they can never change their appearance. They, their stats are always going to be at zero. And if people see them, they tend to get frightened and they break the masquerade. And I'm going to get back to what the masquerade is after I mention this. Is the, the Nosferatu do have an advantage, though, that they can travel throughout the levels in the sewers. And they can feed off of rats and get a lot of blood points from that. Now, after the Nosferatu, there's also the Bruja, which are physically dominant vampires. They tend to have more strong 
um, be, uh, strength based stats like melee or unarmed and things like that and in the lore of the world of darkness the bruja tend to be the idealists and they're very radical then comes the gangrel the gangrel are a more animalistic loner type of vampire they're a bit in tuned with their animalistic side which comes in the skills that you can use in the game and there is the tremere now the tremere are one one of the clans that i find actually very interesting because i did my first playthrough as a tremere the tremere are considered blood mages so they're the only only type of vampires that can use blood magic and the characteristics of a Tremere is that they're considered the usurpers. So they kind of are cunning and they kind of are in the shadows trying to play everyone, trying to get ahead. Then comes a vampiric kind of royalty or the pure, I guess, blue bloods or, or however you'd call them, the Ventru. The Ventru are basically the uh, top 1% of vampires. They are the most dominant type and they tend to take leadership roles and eventually have the ability to dominate people even other vampires and they're the ruling class of the vampires though the venture isn't interesting as much as the other last clan the last clan is called the malkavian now the interesting thing about the malkavian is that they have the power of insight one might be confused by what they mean by that, but when you start playing the game, you start to understand what exactly they mean. The power of insight means that they have this sixth sense about them that, that makes them highly intelligent, very dexterous, and these are all stats you get in the game. But due to the Malkavian's insight, they're actually driven to insanity in some form or the other. And that's something that comes out in the gameplay as you start noticing that your dialogue options is completely different from other vampires. So much so that even the way that other vampires or characters respond to you are completely different. While the vampires also have their clans, they also have something called their sects. In these sects, they all have a different ideology and va different type of vampires are found in different type of sects. I mean, there's... The Camarilla, which is like the government-based uh, vampire sect that kind of wants to keep the world of vampires hidden from human beings, which is called the Masquerade, meaning that all the vampires have to up uphold this rule that they have to be hidden from humans and keep everything, like, keep their vampiric nature a secret. Now... The, there is the Anarch, which wants vampires to be a bit more free-ruling and not be held down by these rules. And lastly, there's the Sabbat. They are a terrorist group of some sort that feels that there is no need to hide from human beings. An interesting thing about these vampires, other than the fact that they have to hold this masquerade so that they don't get the wrath of the Camarilla on them, is that they have to keep some semblance of humanity, which does play in the game. You cannot kill random people or suck them dry till they die 
I'm, unless they are your enemy. Otherwise, you start you lose the you lose your humanity points, and when you lose all of your humanity points, you kind of feed into this animal, and this kind of causes the character to go into a frenzy and attack whoever is there. Now, as you can see, that there is a deep connection with the role that you play as a vampire choosing the sect you want to be in and your whole immersive process is very much tied into the game so how does the game begin the game begins with you as a person choosing your gender or and then your clan and your stats of which one you want they're based about based around your clan and then it starts with you meeting this character if a man if you're a woman character or a woman if you're a man character and you spend a hot passionate night in a Santa Monica hotel after that you find that you get attacked by other vampires and you're brought into in front of this just you're brought into this auditorium with other vampires there and what happens is the person that you spent that night with, she was a vampire and she turned you into a vampire. And you cannot be turned into a vampire without the permission of the prince. The prince is the one who rules over the cities. So you meet the prince of LA, a guy named LaCroix. He kills off your 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 sire, the person who turns you into a vampire, and He's left with the choice to kill you off, but uh, protests by other leader vampires in the area kind of swayed him not to do so and decided to give you the chance to be, um, to go prove yourself as a vampire, to go live your life as a vampire, but you're kind of cursed without somebody to guide you. That is, was the job of your sire. So you go on to, you're sent to Santa Monica to go complete some tasks for the prince. And that's where the game goes on from there. The The location of this game is based around uh, certain parts of L.A., uh, Santa Monica, uh, downtown L.A., Hollywood, and Chinatown. It's based around this hub-based map where you can, you're can you kind of restricted to the boundaries of this area, but you can go and you can move around uh, sort of freely, and you travel between areas by this cab. And... The interesting part about this game is the freedom of options you get to, to have when it comes to deciding how you want to play your character. And this does have significant effects to the world around you. So when people talk about role-playing games, this is the one thing that you actually get to play that role to a huge degree. And the thing... I have to I give props to is that you get you are given the option to kind of uh, go guns blazing or tear them up from limb to limb or sneak around use hacking use your words and things like that and those are available in certain games nowadays not as much as they used to but it it's a charm of that freedom of you know choice that is kind of part of its appeal and how the fact is that there is a lot of weight to those actions they do kind of come back later on and 
The thing I have to give huge props for is the mood of the game. It's set in this gothic punk kind of world that has this kind of dreariness. And it feels like it's always going to be night. Like you can never imagine this world being day. I guess that's where that world of darkness name comes from. But I mean, these vampires would die if they go into the sun. So they're a bit old school with that. And the level design for these quests that you get, are they feel so organic and unique and they never feel like they're kind of draggy or they have no point they're they're a story of their own one of the levels that i still find entertaining you know in my fourth playthrough so you are given a task by another vampire to collect this um object or personal artifact from a hotel or an abandoned hotel actually so the the person warns you that there's going to be ghosts in there, that it's haunted. And the character kind of brushes it off. I, I mean, you're given the option to brush it off, which of course I did. And when you go to the hotel, you still get that, you get that feeling that you would when you first see the Overlook Hotel, that kind of anxiety and kind of dread. So it... Even though I was an immortal vampire, or somewhat immortal, you still can f- suffer a thing called the final death, you still feel nervous and scared. And this is where the props go to the level design, the sound design, and everything like that. Even though you technically can't die, you still feel scared of these ghosts. And this game is at least 14 years old, and I just played it this morning this level again and I still felt anxiety I still felt jumpy and it did such a good job and the background to the thing is pretty it's pretty generic but still had its weight one time in I think in 1950s a family went there with the father Ed the wife Tiffany and the kids Ed Jr. and I think I forget who it was okay sorry I mistook the wife's name the daughter's name was Tiffany So, the dad starts to slowly lose his sanity. I wonder where we heard that before. And he finally goes nuts and he chops up the wife, throws her into the fireplace. He beheads the boy, puts him in the laundry. And I forget where he left the girl. I guess I didn't find that newspaper. But you kind of are told the story through this newspaper. You're constantly being attacked by the the father ed and the person guiding you through it is the wife and you constantly are seeing the ghosts you know wherever you look that was a very nice touch to it for a game that old some people might consider dated the fact that that level still has its charm the charm that a lot of people if you go through the reviews will always talk about that particular level i mean that's the exclamation point to that game it is an amazing game with well-thought-out quests and well-thought-out characters. Oh my god, the character writing in that game is amazing. And the fact that they wrote these all these lines for these characters to react to and a completely different set of lines for the Malkivian character, it was off the charts. And 
the interesting part about the Malkivian uh, character is that he has a completely different um, reactions to the scenery. Sometimes he will know things even before it's been revealed to the person playing. He's even aware that he's being played in one dialogue tree. The the subtle nuances to the characters and the the fact that their their personalities and who they are actually do play to the game has a, has a weight to it. Like there was a side character of a a woman who is considered a thin blood in their world. She you meet her in the Santa Monica Pier as you would most weirdos, and she has a power of clairvoyance. And if you pay her twenty dollars. She tells you all the plot points of the game. Like you get to know almost everything. But you won't understand that unless you finish the game once. And when you look back at it, you go, huh, I should have listened to her. If only I understood her. So these little tiny um, subtleties, I believe, are lacking in most modern games. Which, to be honest, I kind of don't blame them because... The scale of the game takes a bit of the resources. And this game, when it comes to the combat, it's nothing to write home to. So you can think of trade-off to trade-off, but I believe that it's not about those trade-offs that is lacking in modern gaming. It's this spirit, this this kind of um, free expression when the gaming and the fact that there is still a community that is constantly improving this game and constantly being attached to this game speaks for itself. Even though it's not the most well-known game, it has one of the strongest cults around it. I mean, this is where modern gaming kind of fails the gamers. It doesn't try to go above and beyond unless it's an indie title. With that being said, Obviously, you can tell that I have a good impression of this game. I mean, good is not even going to touch it. It is a lifelong impression. And I've been waiting for a game to come out and kind of take what this game has has built on or the good parts of this game and turn it into something that can translate into the modern industry or this next-gen level. But... Nothing has done that so far. There's been attempts, but they've fallen short. Or they don't even replicate the best parts of this game. They kind of mirror it and give this kind of pale, you know, comparison or shadow of it that just can't seem to hit that right spot. But I still have hope, you know. You know, every year there are new games changing the industry. So, who knows? There may be a new World of Darkness game that's going to come out on this next-gen engines, you know, blow my nips off. That being said, this has been my thoughts on what I consider the best RPG game, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. And if you have the time, you can go on Steam and you can purchase it. And I would suggest to you to get the unofficial patch. Even the lead developers suggest that you get do that. It's the only way to play this game. Anyway, this has been the Pop Cultist Podcast. I have been your host, Amin. And thank you so much for listening. 
here is hoping that the next episode comes out sooner than this one did. I did have some technical issues that I needed to get done with and figure out how I wanted to continue this podcast. But I'll do my best not to keep you waiting for the next one. And thank you. Thank you.